When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I've returned from vacation in the Great Smoky Mountain region of Tennessee, and I also spent a lot of time in North Carolina. I'm going to talk about the trip in this episode today, but there's been so much going on. It feels like fall finally. Very exciting stuff. I have plans for hunting season. Hope you're making plans for hunting and also fishing, trout fishing in particular this year. This week, I also got to preside over my first congressional briefing. Also going to talk about that in this episode. And later this week, I'm going to be going to the second annual Stop 30 by 30 Summit, which I will briefly touch upon. At the end of the show, it's going to be in Dallas, Texas. And all my friends in Texas have been telling me about the heat and how it has been really hot this summer. It's supposed to be in the 90s. We'll talk about that and the significance of that policy and tee up some policy discussions for tomorrow. We're going to have a special Wednesday episode. I'm a little behind because I've been trying to catch up on things. But there are some interesting policy developments I want you all to be aware of, which I will preview and talk about more tomorrow. But I want to go into what I really found interesting about my time in the Smoky Mountains. The Great Smoky Mountains, if you don't know are a range of the Appalachian mountain range that extends from Maine all the way down to northern Georgia. A very long mountain range, simply put. But I have heard a great deal about the Smoky Mountains going specifically to this eastern Tennessee and to north, western North Carolina. And I have friends who've lived in these regions, grew up there, and they said, since I love nature and the outdoors, you have to go vacation there one year. And this year I decided to choose my yearly vacation and camp out in Gatlinburg. And Gatlinburg was a very interesting, very outdoorsy town, the gateway to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, which is shared by both North Carolina and Tennessee, but I largely stayed on the Tennessee side throughout the duration of my trip. And I did a lot of outdoorsy stuff. I'm going to explain some of the activities I did and why I thought those were really great and gave me greater insight into the region and some kind of conservation tidbits I learned you know, little pearls of wisdom or cool history about some of America's conservationist founding fathers. And really enjoyed my time there. It was a little warm, of course. It's been kind of warm all over the country. But it was nice to be on the same Eastern Standard Time Zone because I remember now Tennessee is divided into two zones, so I wasn't thrown off with any time changes. But Gatlinburg impressed me as a city. And it's one of the few places, if you don't know, that has its own, I think, It's one of the few towns in this country that has its own hatchery, trout hatchery to be specific. And every Thursday, they close off trout fishing or fishing in general in the western branch fork of the Little Pigeon River, which is the river that runs through downtown Gatlinburg. And there's adjacent streams and branches of rivers that also flow through there. It's 
beautiful. I cannot tell you enough how much I really loved the surroundings, the, the mountains, of course, the rivers. It was just so peaceful and so many green spaces. But I loved the fact that the town has their own hatchery. And of course, I had to try my hand at trout fishing. We opted for the last day of our trip to do some trout fishing because they had just stocked it on those Thursdays when the river's off limits. And I think trout season is held. They have like two trout seasons. This is the one that you're allowed to do put and take, take fish home. And I think during the winter for three months from December to like March, they have only a catch and release season. But you're allowed to take, if you want to, five fish per person per day home if you're lucky to catch some. And they stock on Thursdays, which is why there's no fishing. And so we opted to do it Friday. It was kind of warm. Didn't have to wake up super early from my hotel where I was staying at. Could drive really quickly, park your car for free on one of these side roads, and just walk on these really accessible kind of walkways and paths down into the Little Pigeon River. So super convenient, very nice for like an urban fishery. And, you know, you have to be kind of humble when you're fishing stock trout. So stock trout are not that easy to catch as everyone makes it out to be. And they're very picky. In in recent trips, I've had stocked trout that I've, you know, tried to fight and to target here in Virginia and other states. They have outsmarted me and outwitted me. And maybe it's because I'm fishing a day after stocking. Stalkers usually take a couple days to adjust. And then you have people who fish out these stock trout very, very quickly. And you don't have the opportunity to fish for them because some people may poach. Some people may get more than their limit. But it was kind of tricky to fish, and I'm learning more and more as I'm trying to do fly fishing. Like I said, I gr- if you follow the podcast, you know I've been fishing since I was little, and I've been fly fishing for about six, seven years now on my own, gotten very comfortable doing it, and it's really hard to predict what fish bite on. I was trying different fly patterns, seeing if they bite it, no response. I identified a pool of them. I could see them very visibly kind of under one bridge, nothing, no movement. And you can see them overhead. We were looking over an overpass and there were so many trout. They were just moveless, not moving whatsoever, just staying there like bricks. And so I saw a lot of fish, but I didn't catch any. But I do like the fact that you can fish in a very busy, heavily trafficked town like Gatlinburg. So like I mentioned earlier, Gatlinburg is the gateway to Great Smoky Mountain National Park. A lot of people visit this town Every year, it wasn't so packed like other places I've been to across the country, but it definitely was busier than I thought it would be. But to fish in Gatlinburg, if you're curious and want to try and you have more success than me, hopefully, you go to the Tennessee Game State Game Wildlife Agency website and get your license. It's very easy to get like a day license. So for like the trout permit in Gatlinburg, it was maybe one day $3. And then there was another trout stamp that was like $11. So in total, you're going to pay before taxes $14 and they charge a service fee. So I paid maybe at most $17 for a day pass. Very reasonable. Again, your monies go to conservation, not really too much of an expense. And it's not like your typical like day pass that applies across the whole state, regardless of species. And in most states, you're going to obviously have to pay a separate fishing license rather than just paying for your general fishing license, uh, freshwater license, trout stamps, except for a few states I've been to, um, they're their own separate license on top of a general fishing license. But Tennessee has their kind of system oriented a little differently. So you're only fishing specific regions where trout permits are required, like I said, because Gatlinburg, the town of Gatlinburg stocks their own trout. And so 
fishing, even though it was the tail end of my vacation, tried it. You know, it's always good to try a new body of water, even if you don't have success. I didn't snag anything. I didn't lose anything. And I learned that stalkers can be very stubborn and it confirms my thoughts about stocked fish to being stubborn. I still like stocking programs. I'm just frustrated sometimes as an angler that they're not biting on my presentation and they're, they're very finicky and unpredictable. But going back to spending about a week in this gateway to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park and Great Smoky Mountain National Park, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize at the time, I, I knew this going into my vacation. I wasn't aware until I'd seen reports earlier this year that it's the most visited national park, almost three times as much as some of the more popular parks or parks you hear about often, like Grand Canyon, Zion. I know lots of people who go there. I've gone to both parks myself. But it may kind of make you curious, like, why is this park in North Carolina and Tennessee the most heavily visited national park ever? And it makes sense why. Because there are so many states within driving distance of this shared national park between the two aforementioned states, there's a lot you can do. When I got to visit the park last week, it was really easy to navigate. And obviously, anytime you go into a national park, you'll lose internet reception. You won't have Wi-Fi. So I was able to like program destinations and spots I wanted to go to within the park. And it's very easy, even if you lose reception, directions are clear about what direction you should go into or where points of interest are located. Still super easy to find, even if you lose navigational access. But the two spots that I visited in particular, so I went to two of the visitor centers because when you first enter the park, there's no entry fee, so to speak. There's no gate that goes to collect your entry fee. It's usually a $30 fee if you don't have a park pass. But Tennessee, I think due to the tax structure they have, they can't charge for an entrance fee. So this is one of the few parks exempted from doing that, to my understanding. And so either way, if you decide to and want to park more than 15 minutes anywhere within Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you have to get a $5 parking permit in a sense. So you're still paying a little bit to enter the park, but it's not like a backbreaking expense. $5 is really inexpensive, and that goes to maintaining the park. And the park was really well-maintained. I will say that I, I liked that it wasn't so crowded at the time that I went. Obviously, when you're going to points of interest, you'll see crowds. So the two points of interest I went to in particular outside of uh, the one in Gatlinburg, the visitor center there, and also the visitor center in North Carolina, which I'll talk about in a moment. I went to rather the wildlife loop or the driving loop called Cades Cove. And this place is known and very popular Uh, to be a wildlife viewing spot. And if you go really early enough in the day, you're able to see things like elk, black bear, coyotes, other types of wildlife. And when I was driving through Cades Cove, I didn't get to see many of the wildlife species, but I did, as some of you saw on social media, record a young coyote pup, which I thought they were more nocturnal, but I know they also thrive in the daytime too, but it was kind of nice to see that. Um, some people of course were stepping out of their cars, which is what you're not supposed to do because you want to limit human animal conflicts. But, um, I had to, we had to stop our car because like people were stopping to look at the coyote, but I was still able to film it from my car. I always try to practice safe, responsible photographing videography captures because wild animals, you know, you see out throughout the park, 50 yards, try to be 50 yards away from these animals because some of them can charge at you, especially if they have tines and antlers or bears are known, of course, to run pretty fast, but did not see any bears um, at this first stop. 
And as we were moving throughout the park, we started in Cades Cove is more towards like the southwestern portion of the Gatlinburg entrance. And then we moved more eastward to go to Klingman's Dome. And I'd seen this and this seemed to me like the most interesting point there. Um, so you park in Klingman's Dome and it sits on the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. And it was kind of overcast that day. And we see a lot of cars parked and you park your car and you have to walk a 0.5 mile hike to the observation deck. And it's not an easy 0.5 mile hike. If you aren't used to hiking or walking or doing some exercise, it can knock the wind out of you because it's a incline, a pretty steep incline. It's not like a straight narrow path up. And then the elevation is over 6,000 feet. It's a pretty high point. It's not as bad as like Rocky mountain national park where you go from, you know, you have to adjust to higher altitudes. It's like 11,000, 10,000 at some points of the park. And if you go to the Alpine Visitor Center, which I did about a year ago, and you go from 11,000 something feet to over 12,000 feet, that will knock the wind out of you. This is not as arduous and backbreaking as, you know, a Rocky Mountain National Park, you know, visit, for instance. But if you're not prepared, it can knock the wind out of you. So I always recommend, you know, put, wearing good shoes, you know, going slow at a, at a good pace is fine. But so we walk the incline, go up there, kind of go in this spiral up to Klingman's Dome. And you can see all these different kind of directions where, you know, where Gatlinburg is, where Cherokee, North Carolina is, where other points of interest are throughout the park. A really cool, like 360 view of a park from, I think, one of the high, it's not the highest. I think it's one of the, the second or third highest point in Rocky Mountain National Park. And Rocky Mountain National Park, if you don't know, had last year 13 million visitors. And the year before, I think it was about 14 million visitors. And what comes after Rocky Mountain National Park? Let's see. I believe it was Grand Canyon, which had like 4.7 million. And then Zion had 4.69 million. Then Rocky Mountain National Park, which had uh, 4.3 million. And Acadia out of Maine. Then Yosemite, Yellowstone. So this almost has like threefold the type, the amount of visitors as Grand Canyon and Zion, which is amazing to me, but it, it makes sense. The views are unparalleled. The wildlife viewing opportunities are plentiful. And I was alluding to the visitor center on the North Carolina side when you're going towards Cherokee, North Carolina, and we didn't get to see elk, but I was told the meadow adjacent to this visitor center is known to have a lot of elk. And right now the elks should be rutting, you know, they're mating. September is known for the rut. And we didn't see them there. I think the park ranger said they hadn't been through the region in a few days or in that particular spot in a few days. So we didn't really have any luck seeing them, but we saw some chickens at the farm that is on site. And there was a beautiful river again, flowing through it. Still nice, immaculate. The scenery was great. So that always makes up for you not seeing wildlife, but the chickens were really interesting to see there. But I really liked the park. I thought thought it was super easy to navigate. I got to learn more about the history, and I see why it is the most visited park in the country. It makes total sense in, in terms of, you know, the East Coast being a populated region, the eastern United States more specifically, very easy to get to. I think in total for me to drive to Gatlinburg, I think it was without traffic, it's like seven and a half, seven hours, almost eight hours, not too terrible of a drive. To get there. So if, if people from Virginia can get there, I think almost anyone can get there. People from Ohio, Pennsylvania, what have you. We, we met a lot of people 
from all over the East Coast and even from other parts of the country more westward. And so I really liked that. And I want to highlight two more things before I move into the Congressional Western Caucus briefing that I did. But I really loved all the attractions that I did. I'm not a theme park person. My theme park is going outdoors. But two attractions that I couldn't miss. Actually, I have to talk about three more. I almost forgot the Biltmore. Uh, but, But the two Gatlinburg attractions I really want to hype up are the Gatlinburg Sky Park and Anakista, which is a theme park. I'm not really a theme park person, but I did some of the walking trails and other like activities. The Anavista Tower walked up to the top of that. That was great. But Gatlinburg Sky Park, and I had totally forgot about the wildfires in Tennessee because I, I was assuming it was somewhere different, not in the Smoky Mountains. But in 2016, if you guys don't remember, there was a horrible fire in, it was fall time in 2016 that really had a terrible impact on the region. It burned thousands of acres, 14 lives were lost. It caused a lot of untold damage. The most famous of the fires that we often heard in the news was the Chimney Tops 2 fire. You may have seen some of the response. Dolly Parton, who is native to eastern Tennessee, this specific area, Sevierville more specifically, and Pigeon Forge, she raised a lot of money for relief efforts here. And you're walking the Gatlinburg Scott Park and you see some of the leftover damage, some of the buildings that weren't restored, lost. But the Sky Park is fairly new to my understanding and had been improved upon since the fire as well. But it's one of the largest, I think the largest full suspension bridge in North America. And walking over that was a little intimidating, but I loved the whole, I did two rounds of doing, you know, walking across the bridge and doing a complete loop in the whole complex. And it has fantastic views of downtown Gatlinburg. And then you can see Anakista and some of the foothills leading into Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, But that was a great workout and it was fun to do the ski lift. I don't think I've ever done a ski lift until then. But um, you learn about kind of the resiliency of Gatlinburg residents in that region when you're walking and traversing the Sky Park. And it's not that expensive. It's a pretty reasonable deal. I would recommend that you get tickets ahead of time. You'll save a little bit of money. Um, but it's a nice view up there, a good hike, and this even suspension bridge, uh, the glass bottom, even though it may be intimidating, it's still really cool to walk over. So I liked that experience. And then Anakista is more of a theme park. You have some rides over there, but again, you go up a ski lift. There were lots of different restaurants. I think there were more bathrooms I've ever seen at an attraction like this than before, and that's nice and helpful, especially if you have a lot of people visiting it was able to accommodate, I feel like, thousands of people. So that was really neat. They also have a really spectacular restaurant called Clifftop. And they make really delicious kind of comfort southern food. So I think that was probably one of the better restaurants I'd gone to in the area. Really liked it. Uh, but you could do some of the walking, hiking trails on the mountaintop. So that's really what drew me in. I Like I said, I don't do much of the theme park stuff. I didn't do some of the few rides that were offered on the mountaintop, but they have some really cool like bear motifs and statues, and they had all the bears dressed up in Oktoberfest gear, so that was really cute. Um, But it was good. I like to walk around and hike, and so you can even do that in attractions like this. And like I said, I wasn't just spending time in Tennessee. I also went to North Carolina a few times. So that leads me to kind of wrap up my trip encapsulation with discussion about my visit to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, about an hour and a half or so away from Gatlinburg proper. 
And I've always wanted to go to the Biltmore Estate. I know it was constructed by George Vanderbilt, and he was, I think, the grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt, but one of his immediate relatives. That history is really fascinating to me, so that's also what drew me into wanting to visit. But I had a long-time goal of visiting because the grounds are immaculate. That house, the mansion itself, is extremely beautiful it's countless upon countless acres, and it's not just the estate. There's also, you know, Antler Village Winery. They have farms. They have a shopping complex. It's it's not just the estate, but it's a huge complex on that property. And I think at one point, I think the original size of Biltmore was 120,000 acres. It's a massive property. And what I learned through my visit there, I, I didn't do the house tour because I think I was more constricted with time. And I didn't want to pay more, but I think maybe I'll go back to Biltmore one day and revisit and do the house tour because that rooftop tour looked really cool. Um, But it was super crowded and I feel like I can get to know a place better if I'm just exploring the grounds. But it's like $55 to go to the Biltmore Estate to do, you know, viewing the garden on your own. And, And the gardens were super immaculate and unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize there was a conservation connection here. But the Biltmore, if you didn't know, was actually the birthplace of American forestry. And I was learning about this, and I, I discovered this, or, or realized this rather, when I was viewing the gardens or touring the gardens on kind of like our self-tour. You know, you get to do that through this kind of option with visiting the Biltmore. And what I learned when I was visiting the gardens, there was a gentleman by the name of Olmsted and Olmsted tapped a very familiar conservationist name before he was a huge name and before he was making his mark on forestry. But if you know about forest management and one of the godfathers of modern day forest management, Gifford Pinchot, you will like and appreciate this connection. But I was seeing through landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted's, you know, kind of involvement here. He had recommended that. Mr. Vanderbilt hired a train forester who later became the inaugural director of the what is now known as the U.S. Forest Service, Gifford Pinshot, and he was the founder of American Society of Foresters to develop a forest management plan for the Biltmore's land holdings, which, like I mentioned, or if you don't know, totals about 125,000 acres originally. And according to the Biltmore website, this is such a cool factoid, Pinshot's scientific forestry plan, the management and conservation of forest lands, was the first of its kind in the U.S. and served as a national model. So it was Biltmore Estate that kind of laid the groundwork for implementation of scientific forestry on a grander scale. And when the Biltmore opened in 1895 on Christmas Eve, a German forester had succeeded Pinshot and expanded the forest management plan across 14 years, including the development of a comprehensive management plan for Vanderbilt's vast Pigsaw Forest Holdings. And I think his wife later sold that to the U.S. Forest, what eventually became the U.S. Forest Service. And apparently, I didn't know this until reading now, um, this successor to Pinshot founded the Biltmore Forestry School, the first school of forestry in the United States, graduating more than 300 of the nation's first professionally trained foresters. So we have George Vanderbilt, Frank Law Olmsted, and Gifford Pinchot, who later became the U.S. Forest Service, to thank 
for forest management practices. And if you know, the East Coast, Eastern United States gets forest management right. And so I loved learning about that factoid. I thought that was a cool conservation connection to wrap up my discussion and overview of my vacation. It's run a little long, I know, but I wanted to give you guys these really fun details and kind of recounting of the experiences here before I move on to the next two topics, which will be a lot shorter, I promise. So as of today, the Congressional Western Caucus, who you see often championing Western policies that are favorable to ranchers, farmers, and even recreationists, hunters, fishers, anglers, what have you, outdoor recreationists, even the caucus is celebrating 30 years of existence. It's been historically bipartisan. Now it's largely dominated by Republicans, but you do get some Democrats involved. And I want to give a shout out to the caucus, not only on reaching this important milestone, I've interviewed some of the members here on the podcast And yesterday I had the opportunity alongside my independent women's forum colleague, Mandy Gunasekara, to present at their lunch and learn or a congressional briefing, as we call it more formally speaking, about what our Center for Energy and Conservation does. So I'm grateful to the Congressional Western Caucus specifically here for inviting us to come and also to their members for coming to the podcast or speaking to me for town hall and discussing about important Western issues. And I think Western issues are not just exclusive to the West. They're very important to people out East as well. They have to deal with a little bit of different dynamics, more public lands, of course, multiple use. The Eastern United States is more private land. And so they do a lot of important work. So I want to give them a kudos for 30 years, and I hope they're going to have 30 more years of existence, but it was really a great opportunity. And I'm thankful to the staff there for welcoming me and Mandy to talk about our center. And I largely touched upon these Western issues about, you know, making sure you're appealing to anglers, hunters, outdoor recreationists in the midst of promoting multiple use. And um, it's not deviating from what they stand for and what they advocate for. But I wanted to hone in on that and talk about how conservatives can be conservationists, especially on these issues. And then also appeal to other stakeholders and constituents within kind of Western lands and and Western areas, of course, in the United States. And that was great. I, I really appreciated the opportunity. And they do a lot of important work. And I think when you look at Congress, whether they're wasting money or engaging in, you know, tomfoolery, I think there are some entities that do phenomenal work. This is one of the more effective congressional outfits out there, in my personal opinion, and I just want to congratulate them on this important milestone and invite more of their members to come on the show. Please come on and talk about what you guys are working on, any concerns you have that you'd like my listeners to know, and we'll make that happen. Final point I want to talk about here, I'm heavily involved in opposing a policy called 30 by 30, especially on the recreationist side because I'm very concerned that a whole-of-government, top-down approach to conservation, especially with this promise of protecting 30% of waters and 30% of lands by 2030, these arbitrary deadlines, they don't usually hold water, and they have a lot of implications. And sportsmen and women haven't really engaged on this issue. I've studied it enough where I am not a fan of this. And that doesn't make me any less of a conservationist. I just am not trustworthy of this administration in executing a full-throated conservation plan. And I don't think you need to have a whole-of-government approach to conservation. You can have guidelines and policies, but this is too concerning for me. And so I've been on the forefront with others 
really shedding light on this policy and it's going to culminate again in a annual summit, the Stop 30 by 30 summit in Dallas, Texas this week. And we're going to be hearing from a phenomenal lineup of speakers. I myself am moderating a panel discussion with Benjamin Burr, who used to work for Senator Mike Lee, and also current Representative Tom Tiffany, who was a previous guest here on the show not too long ago. And he's also the chair of the subcommittee on federal lands in the House Natural Resources Committee. And he's really attuned to these issues And I think both of them are going to make excellent panelists, and I have some great questions for them that I'm going to be fielding them. But outside of my own personal involvement, we have a great lineup of speakers. I want to share briefly who is keynoting, who is speaking, and what you can expect if you are attending. And if you're not attending, I will have some pictures and some commentary about the event for you afterwards, but we will have... Former Fish and Wildlife Service Director Aurelia Skipwith to deliver a keynote. She did not get her due as Fish and Wildlife Service Director, and I really do miss having someone like her at Fish and Wildlife Service because what the agency has morphed into recently is embarrassing with eco-grief counseling and just their not so much of a prioritization on working with sportsmen and women adopting lead phase outs, you name it. I'm just not confident with the direction that agency is going in. So I really wish Aurelia was back in the office in, in the position rather. And at some point we are going to sit down and do a podcast with her. She's really phenomenal and smart and knows these issues really well. And I want her to talk about her tenure and I want her to comment also on where she thinks the agency is going wrong. We also have, I think, Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller, some state lawmakers, some activists who are fighting 30 by 30. It's a really good group of people. I think we're going to have a few hundred people in attendance. And if you find yourself in the Dallas, Texas area and don't have anything to do and you're really curious about these land issues, I highly recommend you come. Tickets should still be available on the website. So if you're interested, curious, I will include links in the show notes for you to check out and see if this is a conference for you. But this conference will be continuing year after year. I anticipate it's going to continue next year as well. Not sure what location, but they kind of switch from location to location. Last year, we were in Lincoln, Nebraska. This year, it's Dallas, Texas area. And so I will report back to you all what happens with the summit, if anything interesting or peculiar occurs. But I'm looking forward to this panel I'm presiding over and how... We get the hook and bullet crowd, outdoor recreationists, to become a little skeptical of so-called public land proponents who are actually limiting their opportunities to go on public lands because we're seeing a lot of that. It's a paradoxical thing. It sounds crazy, but it is happening all across these agencies, DOI, Fish and Wildlife Service. They are finding ways to kick traditional users and funders of conservation off these lands through more deceptive means, of course, but some of them are are overt as well. But I think this is a timely discussion, and I think it'll open and invite some more conversations about why top-down, whole-of-government approaches may actually be detrimental to true conservation efforts. So I hope uh, those in attendance will listen to this. I think we'll try to have video remarks afterwards. I'm not entirely sure. But I will recount the experience here on the show or on social media, and I hope you guys look out for that. 
Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.